Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class, 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. Should we declare our independence from Thomas Jefferson? We'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about that. You can also support the show by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You throw a few pennies my way that way, or click on the heart button under the video if you're watching on YouTube. The super thanks button. You can also go to Spotify for podcasters. You can support the show that way. All those ways are great ways to support the show financially. But painlessly and easily you can support the show by rate, reviewing, and subscribing to the podcast. Let people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Leave it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. That helps get, get more eyes and ears on the show. And also send me those show requests. I do want to see what you want to hear. And in fact, this is a listener-generated episode today. And it's a wonderful example of what I've been saying on this show for now, it seems like, forever. And that's if you, if you scratch a West Coast Straussian, if you scratch a neoconservative, what you get is a progressive. Right? What you get is uh, the uniparty. And there's no clearer example of that than this particular article that someone sent me from the National Review. The magazine National Review. It's, uh, it's fascinating in many ways. But it's a piece written by Akhil Lamar. Now, if you don't know who Akhil Lamar is, he is a constitutional scholar, teaches at Yale. He is a far leftist. Uh, and he believes in an aggressive central government, in a big government, uh, and a, a constitution with implied powers. He is a Lincolnian. He is everything, essentially, that the West Coast Straussians and the neoconservatives are. Now, the West Coast Straussians would get very upset if I say this. No, 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 we don't believe in that. If you start with Abraham Lincoln, this is what you get. You see? It's the key to understanding everything. But they just can't seem to grasp this yet. And one day, maybe, the West Coast Straussians will come around to the idea that they were all wrong to begin with, that Lincoln really is the problem, that the Republican Party in the 1860s is the problem, that Hamilton is a problem. But you see, National Review is a Hamiltonian rag. National Review is a Lincolnian rag. And if you're that, you're always going to be on the left. I don't care what National Review says. I don't care what positions they take on the culture war or anything else. When you start with that, and you look at how people in the Republican Party frame debates, right? Well, we need to get rid of this. What we need to do, and I'm going to talk about that this week because there's a something that they're talking about, you know, cleaning up government, which is interesting. What we need to do is clean out these people and replace them with these people. 
So what have you just done? You've cleaned out the people in the bureaucracy and replaced them with more bureaucracy. Well, those people will eventually become bureaucrats too, and they're going to do the exact same thing that the other people were doing. But those are our people. So what's going to happen there? Well, the Democrats are going to come in. They're going to clean out those people and put their people in. You still have the bureaucracy, right? So you haven't really solved any problems. If you listen to Vivek Ramswamy, this is essentially what he says. If you listen to Nikki Haley, this is what she says. If you listen to Mike Pence, if you listen to any of these people, Tim Scott, this is what they're saying. You see, what they're not doing is killing the root of the problem, and that is the very Jeffersonian thing to do, which is why I found this piece on Thomas Jefferson at National Review to be interesting. And again, the the listener sent it and said, this thing is awful, you got to cover this. It's from July 31st, so it's a... It's about a month old now. But the title is Declaring Independence from Thomas Jefferson. Why do we want to do that? Well, Amar is going to explain why. And his reasoning is so ridiculous. But the fact that National Review publishes this shows you what that magazine really is. So let's get into it. He says, this year, as usual, I gather with family and friends to celebrate Independence Day. We read aloud the Declaration of Independence. I doubt it. We saluted many of its ideas and toasted many of its signers, especially Benjamin Franklin and John Adams. I doubt he did that, too. We praised the exceptional American Constitution that grew out of it. It didn't. But I did not raise a glass to Thomas Jefferson. I am breaking up with him. <laughs> this is just ridiculous. But anyways, actually, this is July 13th this was published. Um, so... The, the top, it said, uh, I thought it said July 31st, but it's July, it, it was in the magazine July 31st. Uh, online, it was July 13th. But anyways, uh, we praise the exceptional American Constitution, the grad of it. Now, who else says that? The West Coast Straussians. The West Coast Straussians put the Declaration as the foundation of the U.S. Constitution. Now, if you go back and read all the debates surrounding the Constitution, whether it's in Philadelphia or the ratification debates, no one really does that. I mean, there's some discussion about it at times, but no one really puts the two together. They're two entirely different things. The Declaration didn't do anything for the U.S. Constitution. If anything, the, the document that uh, uh, led to, that grew, that let the Constitution grow out of it was the Articles of Confederation. Because language from the Articles was directly lifted and put into the Constitution. If anything, that's what we should be looking at. Not the Declaration, but you see, it's the ideas. We praise the ideas. Saluted many of the ideas that came out of it, right? Toasted its signers. We toasted Ben Franklin and John Adams. Now, his choice here is important because he's going to give you his pantheon of American heroes. This is a leftist now, remember. This is a leftist published in a quote-unquote conservative magazine. And you're going to get National Review readers, and they're going to look at this and say, oh, yeah, this is conservative right here. This is what we got to be. This is conservative. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. So he's breaking up with Thomas Jefferson. He says he's hardly the first. George Washington broke up with Jefferson long ago, and with good reason. At the outset of his presidency, Washington picked the red-headed Virginian as his top cabinet officer. But Jefferson repeatedly betrayed Washington, 
secretly undermining the president's policies and then feigning innocence when confronted. Now, who actually did that was Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton was working as essentially a British agent. Hamilton was committing treason against the United States because it was Hamilton who was working with the British and trying to lure the British into a position where they would be the primary partner of the United States and lying about doing it. He was agent number seven. Uh, I talk about this and how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America, but it's Hamilton who was actually doing this, not Jefferson. He lied to Washington, as he lied to many others, including himself about many things. You see, Jefferson is just a liar. He lied to himself all the time. <laughs> you can't make this up. So he lies to people. Now, I will say this. Jefferson was a little bit duplicitous at times. I'm not, I'm not going to deny that. Jefferson, and I'll give you an example of that. In the 1800 election, uh, there was a... a uh, James Byard of Delaware was in a position to swing the election one way or the other, to either go for Aaron Burr or Thomas Jefferson. And he met with a Jefferson lieutenant, and this man assured Byard that the, the Federalists would not be completely booted out of power, or out of office, essentially, all the positions they had acquired. They, that wouldn't happen. They're not going to go and gut the general government. And so Byard, with that assurance, because he could, didn't think he could get that from Aaron Burr, Byard, with that assurance, through the election of Delaware, uh, through the election of Jefferson, he, he, he controlled two other states as well. He had influence there. So the election goes to Jefferson. Later on in Jefferson's diary, he called Byard a liar. And his sons, James Byard and Richard Byard, who were both senators at one point or another, took to the Senate and defended their father. And I think conclusively defended their father. And so Jefferson, in his own diary, lied about what happened here. So Jefferson could be duplicitous. There's no doubt about this. Uh, he, he could lie. But that said, uh, to say that Jefferson was a liar all the time would be, I think, uh, a little bit of a stretch. And his positions on the general government, as Amar really gets into, are the things that Amar really doesn't like about Thomas Jefferson. It's not his duplicity. It's not this personal squabble with Hamilton or Washington. It's Jefferson's positions on government. In Washington's final years, the father of our country cut off all communication with his former Secretary of State. After August 1796, Washington sent and received thousands of letters, including dozens to and from his faithful aides, Alexander Hamilton and James McHenry, but exchanged not a single note with Jefferson. Well, why? What had happened? 1796 is important, right? So Washington's out of office, 1797. But why would Washington, lived a couple years, cut off ties with Jefferson? Why would Jefferson not send a letter to Washington? And I think it's pretty clear what was going on. Jefferson thought Washington betrayed him. Jefferson thought Washington betrayed what the American War for Independence was about. He had signed the bank bill. He had... Uh, gone into Pennsylvania to round up insurrectionists, quote-unquote, supposedly, in the Whiskey Rebellion. He had done some things that Jefferson was very critical of. Jefferson was critical of Washington and his neutrality proclamation. This came down to a political squabble, not because the two 
had a personal falling out, but because politically they couldn't see eye to eye anymore. In fact, uh, Washington in 1798, essentially 1798-99, is trying to get Patrick Henry to run against Jefferson's man in Virginia, right? which would be John Randolph of Roanoke. So this, be, this came down to politics more than anything else. Washington had decided that Jefferson was basically too sectional, even though he couldn't see that the people that he was being influenced by, which would be Hamilton and others, they were also very sectional. So Washington just couldn't see it. All right, let's keep going. As a constitutionalist, Jefferson's decidedly mixed record was far less impressive than that of Washington, Hamilton, and Chief Justice John Marshall, who was, in fact, Jefferson's second cousin once removed. The two men despised each other. So you know who's a better constitutionalist than Jefferson? Hamilton and John Marshall. And look where this is going, right? Now, now I'll, I'll say this because you have people at National Review, like Richard Brookheiser, who would say the exact same thing. Amar is a raging leftist. What does that say about Richard Brookheiser? You know who else to say the exact same thing? Someone like Alan Gelzo. What does that say about Alan Gelzo? What does that say about these people? And we've got conservatives in America running around using Brookheiser or Gelzo or some of these other National Review dopes as examples of conservatism all because they have the right position on this particular issue or that particular issue, but they're not conservatives. If they were, they wouldn't support such nonsense. Now, you would say, well, wait a second, McClanahan, uh, Hamilton, John, John Marshall, they consider themselves conservative. Washington was conservative. Yeah, Washington was conservative in, in that he didn't want a French Revolution in America, and that's what John Marshall wanted to try to prevent. He thought Thomas Jefferson was a Jacobin. He thought that the Republicans were Jacobins. He called them terrorists. He thought they were going to you know, roll guillotines around the countryside and go lop his head off. Jefferson, though, recoiled at the violence of the French Revolution. He initially accepted it. So did Washington, by the way. And then they thought, well, this is really bad. And Jefferson had that same position. So now he gives you the pros and cons. This is where it gets really funny. On the pro side, Jefferson promoted religious freedom both in Virginia and continentally. Both in Virginia and continentally. Now, Jefferson's advocation of religious freedom was, yes, we should have this everywhere, but the general government can do nothing about it. That was the letter to the Danbury Baptist. I've got a great class at McClanahan Academy reading... Thomas Jefferson, where I get into all this. It's a great class. And by the way, if you're getting this when I release this podcast, which is Labor Day, uh, September 4th, I am running a sale. You can get that class for 25% off if you use the coupon code LABOR at checkout. But only through today, right? This, this deal ends Labor Day, so you want to pick that up. But you get 25% off that class reading Thomas Jefferson. So certainly Jefferson did support religious freedom in Virginia. Uh, he thought that was very important. In fact, it's one of the things he put on his, on his tombstone that he supported that. 
He championed the idea of public education and pushed hard for a federal bill of rights. Now, public education. Yes, Jefferson championed the idea of public education in Virginia in a select way. He thought everyone to a certain age should have rudimentary arithmetic and writing instruction. After that, they would get the best of the best, and then those people would be pushed on. But most people wouldn't be pushed into anything else besides a rudimentary education, which, of course, in the 18th and 19th century is laudable. Right Now we think public education. That means we should have pay for everybody to go to school all the way through college. That's not everybody. That's not what Jefferson would have said at all. At all. Push hard for a federal bill of rights. Okay. He did. He wanted a federal bill of rights. He thought that was important for the ratification of the Constitution because he thought there were problems with it. Now, see, Amar is critical of him for that. Jefferson's most important amendment, the Bill of Rights, was the 10th. That's the one he relied on the most. Amar can't stand that. Amar thinks he should rely on the first. You see, Amar is a nationalist. Amar doesn't like the 10th Amendment. That's dangerous. But you see, the argument against the Bill of Rights, I think it's stronger than people actually realize, that this thing, this Bill of Rights, actually allowed for implied powers. It, it did, 100%, because people ignore the Ninth. That doesn't matter. It allowed for implied powers. He led the charge against the infamous Sedition Act of 1798, which authorized the federal government to punish its political critics. As a young man, Jefferson authored a document, a precursor to the Northwest Ordinance, that would have banned slavery in America's West on both sides of the Ohio River. As territories, yes, but not as states. He never thought that the states were ever prevented from having the institution if they wanted it. Uh, but certainly the, uh, the general government could not have, uh, or I should say the territories could not have become slave territories. This is true. As president, he assured America's survival by doubling its land mass and acquiring the indispensable seaport of New Orleans in the Louisiana Purchase. Throughout his life, he sang the song of democracy and the common man. You see, this is where Jefferson is so good. He sang the song of democracy and the common man. What does that mean? He sang the song of democracy. So, to Omar, these are the things that Jefferson is good on. Good on public education. Think about this now. Think about the things he picks out here. These will often be considered kind of left-wing things. Public education. Uh, now, allowing the government to punish the political critic, critics, I mean, that's, you know, that's not left-wing or right-wing, but nowadays we see that once you're in the establishment, you want to punish your political critics. It doesn't matter what, what side you're on. He's chosen some things. He's picked some things that would show that, you know, well... Uh, Amar is, is virtue signaling, right? Well, the slavery issue here, religious freedom and democracy. Now, here are the cons, he says. He fathered the false idea that each state could legitimately nullify a federal law in its own say-so, as distinct from sounding political alarms against unconstitutional federal actions, filing lawsuits, or doing other things that ultimately relied on national legal and political dispute resolution mechanisms. National legal and political dispute. Now, now see, first of all, he didn't father this idea. This came out of the period leading up to the American War for Independence. This is what they were doing in the colonies. They were nullifying parliamentary acts by not enforcing them. 
It's exactly what Massachusetts was doing with the Stamp Act. That's what they were all doing. But no, no, no. This is Jefferson. He fathered this idea. Now, of course, Jefferson, in writing the Kentucky Resolutions, he conveniently leaves out Madison, of course, who authored the Virginia Resolutions, but leaves out Madison here. This was an American principle, not just Jefferson, not just Madison. This was American. But states can do this. In fact, it was argued during the ratification process states would do this. If the general government passed legislation that was unconstitutional, it was upheld by every branch, well, the states, as it was argued, would be powerful enough to quote-unquote check it. Well, how would they do that? They just don't enforce it. You see? So this isn't some strange idea. And why would you rely on the national legal... Look what he says. Well, uh, we can just sound political alarms. Hey, this is bad. What does that do? Hey, this is bad. You know, we have this federal legislation, it's bad. Okay. Nothing happens. Oh, oh we, can, we can file a lawsuit. Well, they tried that. Went to the Supreme Court. Obamacare. What happens? Supreme Court says it's constitutional. <laughs> uh, we, 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 can, we, can, we can rely on the national political stuff. We'll vote better. How's that worked out? You see, this works well for the left. All of these things that we should rely on. We should rely on the national, political, and legal uh, resolution mechanisms. That works well for the left because you know what? They win. Sounding the alarms works great for the left. You know why? Because nobody pays attention and nobody cares. Voting better works great for the left. Why? Because, well, they win. Filing lawsuits. They generally win. You see? All of these things that they say would work. Is it going to work? Well, they work for them because they win. He played footsie with the plainly unconstitutional idea that a state could unilaterally secede. It's not plainly unconstitutional. There's nothing plainly about it. You know why we know this? Because George Washington feared it. It's not plainly unconstitutional. Washington feared this would happen. It's why he had the farewell address. It's why he favored the Constitution. You go back and read his letters. I've got a great class on that too, reading George Washington. It's why he did these things. Again, 25% off right now, Labor Day at McLeanahan Academy. You can also get the Founding Fathers class, the American President's class. Those are all 25% off. Use the code LABOR. You can get them off. Originalist Papers Bundle is 25% off. Use the coupon code LABOR. You got to get those classes. I mean, look, so much of this stuff I do here, I go into detail there. And when you come out of those classes, you're going to be a rock star when it comes to winning debates on these issues. There's nothing the other side can say to this. It's why some of them have started just to concede. Not, not Amar. He hasn't conceded yet. The plainly unconstitutional, nothing plainly unconstitutional about it. It's the plainly constitutional idea. Why is it plainly unconstitutional to a Marwell? Because Abraham Lincoln said so. That's, that's what these people would say. At one point, he nonchalantly declared that whether America remained united or instead divided into two parts was not very important to American happiness. Jefferson Davis was aptly named. You see, <laughs> it wasn't very important to American happiness. This is true. I think if you had... Uh, a New England today that was his own place, and you had a South that it was his own place, maybe a West. 
you might have a lot happier people politically in America. Our angst, our, our problems, our anger comes from people governing us that aren't like us, that we don't, we don't really agree with. I mean, New England governing California, governing the rest of the United States, or for those people who be, you know, say Alabama or Florida governing them, they don't like it. They don't want it. So why do we force all these incompatible things together? This is just a ridiculously stupid argument. Jefferson Davis. So you got to throw in the Confederacy now. See, Jefferson Davis and Thomas Jefferson, it's just the same. <laughs> he repeatedly claimed that perfectly valid federal actions, such as a federal bank, oh yeah, perfectly valid. Federal bank is just perfectly valid. Because, of course, you can find in the Constitution where it says the United States Congress can charter a bank. That's right there, Amar. Isn't it? Show me. The power in Article 1, Section 8, that says the United States government can charter a bank. Where does it say that? It doesn't, does it? So it's perfectly valid, though. Perfectly valid. See, look at the language he's using here. It's not perfectly valid. In fact, even it, again, another class of McClanahan Academy, reading Andrew Jackson. Even Jackson pointed out, wait a second here, I know what the Supreme Court said, but this is still a disputable position. This isn't so there's still people out there that disagree with this. It's still disputable, still a valid argument that it's not constitutional. Just because John Marshall said it was, it makes it constitutional? Since when? Claims emphatically rejected not just by President Washington. Well, Washington actually thought that Hamilton, uh, I'm sorry, Jefferson and Madison had a pretty good argument against a bank of the United States, but eventually sided with Hamilton because, well, Hamilton wrote more words. And he liked Hamilton anyways. That was his son. That was a surrogate son. So he's going to side with, with his son over Jefferson and Madison. So, of course. And, but by unanimous Supreme Court dominated by men whom Jefferson and his allies had themselves chosen. This is 1819, right? So you think in McCulloch v. Maryland. And uh, the Supreme Court Chief Justice, um, uh, Jefferson didn't choose that person. Now you can say, well, what about Joseph Story? James Madison chose Joseph Story. And there are some others on the bench too. But, you know, regardless, um, Marshall dominated that court. He bullied his way around that court. You didn't, you didn't, have much dissent in the Marshall Court because Marshall essentially said this is the way it's going to be. So, and Omar says at one point his craziness on this issue led him to propose the death penalty for anyone trying to enforce national banking. Less crazy, right? Because we know banking, we know central banking is just angelic. Central bankers are angelic people. They don't do anything wrong. They don't manipulate the economy. They don't manipulate the currency. They don't manipulate credit. They don't do anything to create problems for the American public. They don't, they don't uh, fuse with the general government and create real issues with debt, spending, anything else. They don't do any of that stuff. These are just angelic people that, have, that do no wrong. They're just bankers. Yeah. He came perilously close to urging his backers to march on Washington with guns to bully Congress into handing him the presidency 
in the contested election 1800-1801. Shades of January 6th! You see that Thomas Jefferson is just another insurrectionist from January 6th. This is a national review. <laughs> Think about this. This is not in The Nation or The Atlantic or any of these other kooky left-wing magazines. This is in National Review. That's really, in fact, a kooky left-wing magazine. But it's supposedly conservative. I want to know, I, I would really like to know if Richard Brookheiser, who I know is very high up in National Review, at least circles, if he agreed with this. I think he probably did. Why this thing is even published there. He undermined judicial independence by depriving validly appointed federal judges of their salaries and commissions. Who's he talking about there? Marbury. <laughs> That's Marbury v. Madison. That's what he's, uh, he, he, he undermined judicial independence. Um, you also had, of course, judicial independence. They were trying to get these blatantly partisan judges off the bench, like Samuel Chase. When that didn't work, John Marshall knew. He knew he could do whatever he wanted because impeachment wouldn't work. Now, it was thought for a long time that the judge was openly partisan on the bench, politically partisan. They should be removed. That's bad behavior. That sh you should be gone for that. Marshall knew once it didn't work with Chase, who was openly partisan, once he knew it didn't work with Chase, he could do whatever he wanted. He would never be impeached. So who really is the problem here? Not the Republicans who are trying to keep the general government in line, but the Federalists who stepped way outside the box. Although he rightly opposed the Sedition Act, he did so for the wrong reasons. States' rights rather than free expression. So that's the wrong reason. You see, I told you, Amar thinks the First Amendment is great, but not the Tenth. The Tenth Amendment is a problem. So we shouldn't oppose anything because of federalism. No, no, no. We should only oppose it because of the First Amendment. Thus, he did not forcefully oppose and, in fact, quietly encourage state laws targeting the speech of his political enemies. He pushed the Louisiana Purchase, even though he wrongly thought it was unconstitutional. It was, I don't know if that was so wrong. He was persuaded not to really seek a constitutional amendment that would allow the general government to do it. Uh, and, of course, state laws. See, this is where Amar is just completely crazy. State laws. States can do whatever they want as long as it doesn't violate the state constitutions when it comes to suppression of speech or sedition laws. This is what Nathaniel Macon of North Carolina said. Hey, look, uh, sedition laws from the national government, definitely unconstitutional. Central government, unconstitutional. State laws, you can do whatever you want there. You can have sedition laws at the state level, as long as they don't violate the state constitutions. The last point is worth pondering. Two of Jefferson's largest vices, daftness and hypocrisy, often offset each other. He had many truly bad constitutional ideas, but he frequently ignored them when he was in power. Truly bad constitutional ideas. No, these were pretty good constitutional ideas. You see, truly bad to a progressive writing for a progressive, supposedly conservative magazine like National Review. Again, I don't know why the Atlantic or you know Salon or something didn't publish this nonsense. Another example, he embraced the goofy notion that a constitution should somehow poof out of existence every 19 years. But 19 years into the U.S. Constitution's existence... When he was president, he simply disregarded his own theory. Now, again, that's just... Jefferson couldn't do it himself. What is this? Jefferson could say these things in a letter. I think we should, you know, every 19 years or so. What's he going to do as president? You know what? I'm going to unilaterally get rid of the Constitution. 
It doesn't work that way, Amar. If the public wanted to get rid of the Constitution, they could have. They could have called a convention to do it. They could have done any of that. Jefferson can't do this himself. This is just a stupid criticism. One of Jefferson's most consequential, albeit subtle, cheats appears on his gravesite obelisk at Monticello. His inscription, which he composed with careful forethought, reads in part, author of the Declaration of American Independence. Now, this Marr doesn't really like. Amar doesn't like that Jefferson takes credit for that, because you know Ben Franklin was involved in that too, and so was John Adams. Jefferson wrote the entire thing. Yes, they made changes to it. Yes, they edited it. But it was Jefferson's document. So he did write it. Even Amar says, well, you know, yeah, he did come. But all oh, the Continental Congress got involved in this. So here's what he says. Jefferson did indeed write the Declaration's first draft. Well, from, okay, let's, let's just think about this logically. So I go out and I write a book. I write a book. I submit the draft. The editors get a hold of it, and we have a conference, and we change some things, we edit some things. Does that mean I didn't write the book now? Does that mean the editors wrote the book? Is that what that means? The editors wrote the book. I mean, I'm really wondering about this. Is that what that means? Because this is basically a Mars position. So you write a book. You write the book. The editors get a hold of it. They change some things around. They take some things out. There's some, there's some, things, there's some decisions made. Some languages changed a little bit. So then it becomes, why don't they just put the editor's name on the book then? Oh, the other thing. Let's say you wrote a book, right? And uh, you had input from other people. But you wrote it, but there was input. And these people said, well, maybe we should do this, or you know, that would be an interesting thing to put in a book. So you have input, but you wrote it. That doesn't mean it's yours now, according to Amar. So I wonder how many of Amar's books that he's written aren't really his, because, you know, he had editors, right? And there were people that had input in these things, and he got ideas from other people. So that's really not his book anymore. It's just everybody else's book. It just, should just be public access. Everybody had this book, right? I mean, this is everybody's book. This is his argument. And as Jefferson himself admitted in his more honest moments, in his draft, he merely synthesized countless dozens of precursor texts that had sprouted up across America in the months leading up to independence. So what? It's still, he wrote it. He wrote it. I mean, this is a bad argument. Jefferson did, did add some great stylistic touches. I mean, he didn't really come, just stylistic touches. But the Continental Congress edited him good and hard, eliminating several of his most distinctive and foolish elements. The document that Americans celebrate every July 4th is best understood as America's declaration. Congress's declaration, but not really Jefferson's. Give me a break. So I wonder when we read a Mars book, if that's America's book. Yeah. The Constitution's book, but not really a Mars book. The editor's book, the publisher's book, but not really a Mars book. This is his argument. And language reflecting stunning moral obtuseness and self-deception, Jefferson in the initial draft tried, tried to shift most of the blame on, for American slavery onto Britain. Congress cut this embarrassing passage, and rightly so. But wait a second here. Jefferson was pointing out a fact. There were attempts by those in the American colonies, Amar seems to not understand this, to end the institution of slavery but they were blocked by the British. They couldn't do it. 
Abar says nothing in British policy required Jefferson or any man to hold his fellow human beings in cruel bondage. Well, nothing required them, no, but they couldn't end it either. And Jefferson wasn't incorrect in saying that this institution had been supported by the trade from the crown. Jefferson and they, they cut it not because of the historical problem with it, but because it was something that, honestly, South Carolina in particular, didn't like any critique of the institution, the Declaration, because, well, that would look bad on them. That would reflect very poorly on them. So, but every state had slavery in 1776, every single one. There wasn't one that didn't. So, I mean, Jefferson wasn't really lying here. Jefferson and countless other American slaveholders had chosen to do so for their own pleasure and profit and would continue to do so long after 1776. If he and other Americans were willing to refrain from buying black tea, why not black slaves? Nor had the king or, or parliament prevented him from freeing his own slaves. Jefferson greed and lust had his lust. Why did he say lust there? Because that's Sally Hemings. You see, that's all true. Of course, it's not. Of course, Jefferson kept, uh, of course, I'm sorry, Congress kept much of Jefferson's draft prose. <laughs> so he just argues that Jefferson wrote it, but Congress edited it. But then Congress kept much of his prose, So, but he didn't really write it. Because as Richard uh, Henry Lee said, well, he borrowed from John Locke. You see, this is the this is the strange argument. Amar is just really strange. And he goes through this thing where he says, here is Locke, and then here's Jefferson. I'm not going to read all that stuff. Uh, one thing about Locke, though, if you ever read Locke, and then you read Locke carefully, and then you read Jefferson. If Jefferson did borrow from Locke, then if you read Locke properly... None of the stuff that we talk about where there's universal equality would ever be contemplated from Jefferson or John Locke because they wouldn't have agreed with it. Man is equal in nature. Once you enter society, a civilization, you're no longer equal because you're not nature anymore. There's a whole part of this that people don't get. We're in society now, so you lose all that equality. All that's gone. In nature, for all that running around in the woods... Which you have to question, has man ever really been fully in nature? But if nature, if we're all just running around the woods trying to survive, well then, of course, you would say that in nature, um, that might be. But Locke says it, there being nothing more evident than that creatures of the same species and rank, promiscuously born to all the same advantages of nature, should also be equal one amongst another. So you're talking about people with the same talents, same species, same rank, then you would be equal, right? So equal talents, equal abilities, equal station. You'd be equal to nature if you all didn't have any of the other breeding or anything else that goes into it, any of the kind of education, any of that. That's the key that everybody misses with Jefferson. Jefferson knew all this stuff. Everybody knew this stuff. They didn't believe in this kind of leftist universal equality that we get into nowadays. So, uh, I'm going to skip on down to the end of this because he does bring up, of course, Sally Hemings uh, as, as a fact. Well, let me, let me get into some of these things. Uh, Jefferson and Madison's private vices mirrored their public lapses. Washington freed his slaves on his deathbed. Not his wife's, though. And in fact, most of the slaves remained under in slavery because they were really his wives, wife's slaves. So 
There was a number of slaves. And why didn't Washington do that? Because he feared what, that, what would happen if he did. Jefferson and Madison not. As he aged, Washington improved on the slavery issue, and so did Franklin. Jefferson and Madison decayed. This is why we should uh, not support Jefferson and Madison. Today we call these men and others our founding fathers, and it is fair to focus on fatherhood. Washington sired no heirs, though he did adopt a pair of step-grandchildren from Martha's first marriage. He became father of all, in part because he was father of none. Oh, you see, this is good, right? So the man that had no children could be the father of all because he had none of his own. His fellow Americans trusted him with the presidency in large part because he had no dynastic dreams. No George Jr. or George W., no John Quincy or Donald Jr., no Charles III or William V., to whom might seek to transfer his throne. Madison also had no heirs. But Jefferson did sire offspring, both literally and metaphorically. So you see, uh, we loved Washington because he had no child. This is just weird, right? Nobody thought about that. We thought, well, you know, we like Washington because he has no children. That's why we like Washington. We like Madison because he had no children. That's just a weird statement. But Jefferson did sire offspring, both literally and metaphorically. He was emphatic that his gravesite obelisk should describe him not merely as author of the Declaration of American Independence, but also as father of the University of Virginia. But what's wrong with that? University of Virginia? He thought this was a something that was essential. But of course, no. Uh, no, uh, that, that's bad. Now, if you look at some of the recent histories on UVA, well, it's bad because this was all just to foster more Southerners. That's a bad thing. He was also the father of several slave children with a slave mistress, which isn't true. See, just, I mean, the lie here, it's not true. This is just passed around conclusively as true when it's not conclusive in any of this. This is one of the great lies of current historical scholarship. There's nothing conclusive about it. You have to say it conclusively, as this piece does. I mean, I guess if you say a lie forcefully enough, then people believe it. And this is what Amar does throughout the entire piece. This is ridiculous. Did Jefferson love Sally, who was the half-sister of Jefferson's dead wife? Did Sally love Thomas Jefferson? Could this love coexist with his power over her and ownership of her? These are important questions, but here are other questions that America needs. I mean, you just, what a weird paragraph. Why would you even throw that in there? Because none of this is true. None of it's true. We know that there's a Jefferson that had at least one child with Sally Hemings, but that's all we know conclusively. That's it. That's it. So how, how did he father go from one potentially to all, number one, and Randolph was probably the father. But doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. A man who lied again and again about his true fatherhood, who never openly acknowledged his true offspring, even as many of his slaveholding contemporaries did in fact admit their paternity of mixed-race children. Because he didn't do that, right? What did we make of a man who enslaved his own children? He didn't. He didn't. <laughs> That's not something he did. So, I mean, again, the, the accusation is it just drops without merit. Now, the last two paragraphs on this, and I'm going to wrap this up. We've been going a little long, are hilarious. The last one, actually, is the one I want to say 
is is uh, the point I want to make from the beginning. You see, we don't really celebrate the antebellum United States anymore. We celebrate the new revolution. And Amar, who is a progressive, says this. And this is, an, again, a progressive publication, the National Review magazine. He says he urges his friends to pivot away from Jefferson. Let us instead use this day to, and all other Independence Days to pay special tribute to more admirable founding fathers, such as Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, John Adams, and Alexander Hamilton. Funny he picks all those guys, which all the leftists really like. And let us not forget America's great refounding fathers and mothers. Ah, who are these refounders? See, we had the founding, then we had the refounding, such as Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, Charles Sumner, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Harriet Beecher Stowe. Men and women who rejected Jefferson's worst ideas, embraced his best ideas, and made them better still. You see, that's the key. And I'm going to tell you, the 1776 Commission would have put all those people in there. When you scratch a Straussian and you scratch a neoconservative, you get a mar. Is that really conserving anything? See you next time on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.